politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, international conflicts, climate change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown, Back to the Future. Continuing Episode 11, Secrets of the Psychics. Now I want to share with you about a person who I believe was one of the people who have this gift of prophecy. A person by the name of Ellen G. White. Let me talk about her for just a moment, give you a little bit of history on her. This woman was a Methodist at first. She grew up as a Methodist. And uh, when she was about nine years of age, she's coming home from school one day when one of the girls from her school got real angry at, these, at, at her and her sisters and so on and threw a rock. And as she threw the rock, Ellen turned around to see where she was coming and the stone smashed right into her, her nose and, and did a lot of damage. She was not able to do any more formal schooling after that. From there on, from nine years of age, any education she got was at home, self-taught, self-reading, and she did a lot of reading as well. So that was her background. When she got to the age of 17 years of age, she was given her first vision, uh, a dream, a vision that she was given. Now, she had 2,000 visions during the rest of her life. Now, many of these things that took place when she was in vision, especially in the early times, supernatural things happen. Things you could not, you have to say, this is, this is, this is, this is not normal. It's super normal or supernatural. For example, there were times when she would be in vision for up to two hours at least, and she didn't breathe during the two hours. In fact, a doctor heard about this and he thought, this is crazy, this is nuts. Nobody can not breathe for two hours and still be living at the end of it. So he came with his candle and his mirror and so on. And when she was in vision, he heard it, raced down, held the mirror in front of her, the candle. No breath was coming out. He ran out of there. He said, this is crazy. I'm out of here. She also was known to hold up one of these big family Bibles in her hand while she's in vision, looking over there and she's quoting scriptures and, and she's, she's turning without looking to the very pages in the Bible and pointing to the finger on those very passages that she's, she's hearing about and just pointing to them. Now, that doesn't mean it's coming from God. That just says something's going on here that we better find out, is it coming from God or the devil, right? Just because something's supernatural doesn't mean it's coming from God. So we would need to apply the test to her, which we'll do in a moment. Very supernatural things happen to her during her visions. Now, this lady wrote over 50 books. In fact, she's the most prolific writer among women for the whole of the world's history. Let me share with you a statement. This is a man who wrote about her. He's not one of her faith, but he just wrote about this woman. This remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated because of that accident, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. So she was a prolific writer indeed. That's George Wharton James in his book, California Romantic and Beautiful. Let's do the biblical tests now because we need to do those because they're the, they're the test for a true prophet. So let's apply them and see how she goes. What about prophetic accuracy? 
like the Bible prophets, most of her writings was not predictions. Most of the Bible prophets are not predicting. You read the book of Isaiah. Yes, there are predictions. You read the books of Moses. It's instruction. Messages from God to help people live a godly life. Be ready for the next life. But she did make some predictions like Bible writers did as well. Here's one. Not long from this time, not long hence, these cities will suffer under the judgments of God. And she names the cities. San Francisco and Oakland are becoming as Sodom and Gomorrah. These are two twin cities in United States. And the Lord will visit them in wrath. Notice the time of writing that, 1902. Just a couple of years later, San Francisco had that incredible earthquake and much of the city was destroyed with its twin city, Oakland. Devastating earthquake. Yes, she made predictions and they happen. Then she also made these predictions at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s. The tempest is coming. We shall see trouble on all sides. Now, let me just back up. When we come to the end of the 1800s, this is what people were saying. We are now entering the age of peace. We have the Industrial Revolution. Humans are coming of age. Now we're entering a time of peace. We are too smart to really get into big wars anymore. That was the euphoria of the late 1800s and early 1900s. So she's writing at this time. The tempest is coming. We shall see trouble on all sides. Thousands of ships will be hurled into the depths of the sea. Navies will go down and human lives will be sacrificed by millions. Notice when she writes that, 1890. Here's another one. This one is 1906. Soon great trouble will rise among the nations. Trouble that will not cease till Jesus comes. Well, what do we have not long after? World War I, World War II, 180 million people killed by war alone last century. Unbelievable. Navies did go down to the ocean. Ships by the hundreds you just read what happened when the Nazis sent their U-boats. They nearly took Britain out of the war because of their U-boat strategy, sinking so much tonnage of ships during the Second World War. On top of that, the First World War and so on. She certainly got this right at a time when people were saying, no, we've come to a new age of peace. She even made sort of like predictions about certain other types of things. Well, they're not quite predictions, but she had insights. She wrote about cigarette smoking at a time when doctors were prescribing cigarettes to help their patients. Would you believe it? She wrote, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. That's an interesting word, malignant, isn't it, when you think about a cigarette? In whatever form it is used, it tells upon the constitution it is all the more dangerous because its effects are slow and at first hardly perceptible. You can puff for a few years, but inwardly, secretly, silently, something is happening to your lungs and something is happening to other body parts because of the chemicals, the carcinogens in cigarette smoking. She sure got that right. This was written way before the Surgeon General, the United States Surgeon General, announced in the 1950s that smoking causes lung cancer. Number two, was she biblically faithful? Did she stick to the scriptures? Let's notice. In our time, she said, 
There is a wide departure from there, the doctrines, the Bible's doctrines, and its precepts, its teachings. And there is need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and duty. That was the cry of the Reformation. It says, we need to get back to our Bibles. We need to go back to these scriptures. Now, I'm going to read a statement. Uh, she compared her writings in a, to the Bible. Notice how she compared her writings to the Bible. Little, lead, little heed is given to the Bible. People don't listen to the Bible as they should. And the Lord has sent a, or given a lesser light. That's her writing, she said. What for? To lead men and women to the greater light. She said, the reason God has given me messages is to tell people, get back to the Bible. That's the greater light. Mine are just a little, little candle turning people to the greater light, the Bible. So she never saw her writings as another Bible, but just to lead people back to the Bible. Now, I want to share with you an amazing statement because this is relevant to the world today. During the 1700s, beginning in the 1700s and, and growing ever more stronger during the 1800s, we have what we call the age of reason, where people said, we don't really need revelation. We can just use our brains and we can arrive at truth. And pretty soon when they did that and sort of pushed the Bible aside, pretty soon they encountered things like, hang on, doesn't science teach that we evolved from monkeys over millions of years? But doesn't the Bible say we were created in six days? So let's, let's tear that little bit out of the Bible because that's not right with science. So then what about a virgin birth? Have you ever heard of a virgin giving birth to a baby? Come on, give me a break. Let's tear that little bit out of the Bible. That doesn't fit with our ideas. And what about the idea that a resurrection. You ever heard of people rising from the dead? Really? Give me a break. Let's tell that bit about Jesus rising from the dead. And then, of course, how can you have miracles? I mean, that's got to be out of the Bible, too. And then prophecy. Surely you can't have predictions telling you what's going. And you see, pretty soon the whole of the Bible is falling apart. And by the time we we finish, if we're not careful, we'll just have the front cover and the back cover and nothing in the middle. That's what we call higher criticism in scholarly circles. Higher criticism, men taking upon themselves to decide what's right and what's wrong in the Bible. She's writing about this. I want you to notice what she says. Cling to your Bible as it reads. Stop your criticisms in regard to its validity and obey the word and not one of you will be lost. That's mighty good advice. That's mighty good advice. He's saying the Bible is God's word. Cling to it. Stop trying to criticize it. It's not the right thing to do. So she had a high regard for the Bible. By the way, her last time she spoke to a, a group of people, a large group of people, she just finished sharing from the Bible. She was walking back to sit down when she came back and she picked up the Bible and she said, I commend to you this book. Read this book, study this book. Good words. She certainly had a high regard. What about exalting Jesus? I want you to notice some statements she's mentioned. Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon. Lift him up in song. Lift him up in prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls who are confused, bewildered, lost to who? 
the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, in other words. Lift him up, the risen Saviour, and say to all who hear, come to him who has loved us and has given himself for us. I love one statement she said, brought great hope to my life when I was really confused. She made the statement, she said, the moment a sinner comes to Christ, the moment, that moment they are pardoned and they are no more to doubt God's forgiving grace if they're clinging to Jesus. Beautiful words. She knew Jesus. By the way, we mentioned here are some of the books that she wrote. She wrote one of the best books you'll ever find on the life of Christ called The Desire of Ages. That's a, that's a dynamite book that'll draw you close to Jesus. Christ's Object Lessons, The Parables of Jesus. Beautiful lessons from there. Steps to Christ. Uh, we gave uh, that book out to people uh, a few weeks ago. That's a tremendous book on how to connect with Jesus and stay connected with Jesus. Was she commandment keeping? Yes, she was. She was a Sunday keeper at first. And then she heard about the Sabbath. She didn't get it at first. She didn't see it at first. And by the way, that's a good lesson for all of us. Just because someone doesn't get what you've got, doesn't see it like as clearly as you see something, don't wipe them off. Sometimes God takes a bit of time with us people to, before we get things, right? I can remember some things that I, it took me a couple of years before I realized Jesus could forgive me. <laughs> I was thick as a brick. Um, but she, she finally saw it. Ah, oh, wow. So as soon as she saw it, she began to keep it. That's the right thing to do, isn't it? And that's what God means. God doesn't, God doesn't um, judge us for what we don't know. But what we do know, in other words, what we see and what do we do with what we see clearly from the Bible. So when she saw the Sabbath is the seventh, she changed. She became a Sabbath keeper as well. What about the spiritual fruitage of her life? What about her lifestyle? What was it like? Let's have a quick look at this. It's very interesting. She, because of Ellen White, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, took on board what she said. She said, you guys, this church, she said, you need to establish hospitals and healthcare centers. What did Jesus do? He just didn't preach. He healed broken bodies. He mended people's hearts. He, he just went about healing and doing good. So it was because of her, this woman, that the Seventh-day Adventist Church today has over 785 hospitals and, and clinics and, and uh, healthcare centers around the world. She said to the church, she said, listen, the Bible says go into all the world. That doesn't just mean North America. That doesn't just mean Australia. That means you go everywhere. So she pushed the church. She said, this is what God is telling us. Go. And that's why the Seventh-day Adventist Church is in 209 countries today, largely because of her influence. The Seventh-day Adventist Church today has the largest Protestant educational system in the world. Why? Because of this woman. She said, listen, God wants young people educated so they can be a blessing to the world today and help them prepare for tomorrow, the eternal life, largely because of her influence that the church operates that many schools. When she died, this is what a newspaper wrote of her. Notice what they said, the New York Independent newspaper. 1915, she died. She showed no spiritual pride and sought no filthy lucre. She didn't do this work for money. She lived the life and did the work worthy of a worthy prophetess. She never called herself a prophet. She called herself a messenger, but people did. She did the work of a worthy prophetess, the most admirable 
of the American succession. Let me just give you a couple of examples of here in Australia. She spent about 10 years in Australia at one time, living, in fact, she even lived, came to Tasmania. That's a one-up on you guys in the West here. <laughs> no, seriously, she lived up in, uh, in Melbourne especially and around Newcastle, but she was loved by young people. You know why? Because she believed in young people and she put scores of them in her home to look after them. She believed in them. She said, no, these young people, they are the best gift to the, to the church. They've got energy. They've got enthusiasm. They need to be educated. So she put young people up in her home. New Zealand's first Maori politician. I didn't say that right. Maori, my New Zealand friends. Um, the New Zealand's first Maori politician was educated by Ellen White. You may not have known that. Samawi Pamawi. She paid for him to go to North America to study to be a doctor. He came back as a doctor and then eventually became a politician in New Zealand, but educated by the money from Ellen White herself. When she was living in Australia, the people where where she lived around, they loved her, even though they were not of her faith. Some of them probably didn't believe anything. But why did they love her? Because if anybody was sick, she would go and send them something to help them at such a time. If someone had a baby, she'd send a message and say, or come and visit them and say, here's a little something for your baby and for you at this time. She was just loved by people because she was kind and had a big heart for people. So this is what this newspaper is saying here. She had a good life. All right. Let's notice a survey that was done among Seventh-day Adventists because uh, her writings are kept by the Seventh-day Adventist church and available through them. Now, sadly, not all Seventh-day Adventists who could read her writings read her writings. That's a terrible admission to make, but some people don't even bother about reading her writings. So they've done surveys in the Seventh-day Adventist church between those who read her writings and those who don't read her writings to see is there a difference in their journey with God. So this is what the survey shows us. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Just four questions we'll look at this morning, today. In meaning, I love Jesus. He's my best friend. Here's the difference. 82% for the regular readers. So those who read her writings could say, yes, yes, I do have an intimate relationship with Jesus but only 56% for the non-readers could say that next one that's a that's a whopping 27 6% difference the assurance of being right with God what does that mean it means like the thief on the cross I know that if I die I will meet Jesus when he comes if I die tonight if Jesus comes tonight I'm ready I have the assurance of salvation that's what this question's about you will be with me in paradise. 82% for the regular readers, 59% for the non-readers had the assurance of salvation. A whopping 23% difference. What about this one? Involvement in Christian outreach and service activities. In other words, helping other people and not just sitting on a chair in a, in a church. <laughs> Look at the difference. Readers were 24% more involved than non-readers. Why? Because everywhere she's saying, listen, we're not here as Christians to sit on a pew. We, we, we do it for a little while, but we need to get out there in the community because there's, there's people in need. There's people who've got broken hearts. There's people who've got broken bodies. There are people who need education. Get out there and serve. God needs hands like Jesus came among people. Last one, daily personal Bible study. Now, you may think, well, people, if they're reading her writings, they don't have time to read the Bible. Wrong. 
Have a look at this. 82% for the regular readers said, yes, I do personal Bible study. 47% for the non-readers. In other words, those who didn't read her writings were less inclined to read the Bible. Why? Because she's always saying, go back to the Bible. You need to read the Bible. Spend more time in the Bible because the Bible is God's book. So a massive difference there. 35% more involved in Bible reading. So very helpful, her writings to people's journey. Now listen here. God does not want us to despise the gift of prophecy. This is one passage that shows that. Second Chronicles 2020. Believe in the Lord your God. You shall be established. You'll be strong. Believe his prophets and you shall what? Prosper. God's prophets are given not to make our life a burden, but to help our life be a blessing. However, God doesn't mean us to swallow it hook, line and sinker. He says, test it. Paul says, despise not prophesying. Don't just be sucked in by everything. But what does he say next? Test all things. Check it up. Hold fast what is good. Good words from the apostle Paul. Now here's a question. If you wanted to know whether the Bible was true, would you go to the internet to find out if the Bible's true? Well, I certainly hope not. Because when you go to the internet, you will find a lot of rubbish about how the Bible's the worst book in the world. If you just listen to what people say about the Bible, you'll be in big trouble. What would be the best way to know if the Bible's true? Read the thing. Read it. When you read it, you see the truth very clearly. Same with Ellen White. What you want to do if you want to know, is she a true prophet or a false prophet? Because you've got to do that for yourself. Is just read some and compare it with what? Check it up with the Bible. That's the test. You see. So read it. Wouldn't want to go to the internet because you'll find again, just like the Bible, people are criticizing all sorts of things. The best test is, first of all, just read some, but compare it with Scripture. Listen, that's even what Paul did. Paul came to a place called Berea, and when he finished, he said, Whoa, those people in Berea, were they great people? He said, Because when I came to them, as an apostle and a prophet, remember, Paul was, they checked up on me whether I was teaching the truth. They went to the Old Testament and said, Is Paul teaching the truth? So that's the way we test anything. We go to the Bible. We read, we compare it with Scripture, and that's the way you will be helped. Let me share with you in closing the story of Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith was a man living in the time of Ellen White. And he was bitter as gall. You ever met people like that? They can't say a good word even about the devil. Well, probably no one would. But they couldn't say a good word even about Jesus, some people, you know. They're so critical and bitter about everything. They've all, all that comes out of their mouth is, is nasty stuff or negative stuff. You've met people like that? By the way, don't be like that. It's a pain in the neck to be like that to other people, isn't it? Really. But this is what Stephen Smith was like, always bitter. And one day, Ellen White was given a, a message from God about this man, what he was like and what he would become like. Because she had many messages from God, visions and dreams about certain individuals. And she wrote to them because God said, I'm telling you this so you can write to them to help them. So she gets this vision about Stephen or this message about Stephen Smith. So she writes him a letter, dear brother Smith, and she writes it out, all what God has shown her about his life. She signs it, Ellen White, puts it in an envelope, puts her address on the back. 
and sends it to Stephen Smith. He gets this letter in his mail and when he looks at the back like you do, it looks like, you want to know who it comes from? Ellen White. I don't want to read any blankety blank letter from any blankety blank prophet, he said. And he got hold of that letter, he folded it up, he took it upstairs to his attic and he found the trunk and he stuffed it in there and slammed the lid shut and there it stayed for years. He never read it. Well, Stephen Smith got bitterer and bitterer and he left God. Years later, he's, 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 he's an old man now and his life is running out. But you know, God never gives up on any one of us. Thank God for that. And he's an old man and God's spirit began to tug on his heart. Stephen, you don't have much time left on this planet and you know what your life has been like. You need to turn to God. Stephen Smith decided to go to church. <laughs> he goes to church and you know what it's like when you go to a church, you've got things in the rack in front of you. Well, he pulled out a paper and he read something and he thought he read it. Boy, that's a great thing that I read. And then he looked at the bottom and it said Alan White. And he remembered the letter right there in church. So as soon as church was finished, he raced home, went home, grumped up to the attic, rummaged around in that chest and pulled out the letter, sat down and he read that letter and he began to cry. Because everything that had happened in his life was written in that letter of what would happen to him and it had happened. And he thought, why did I not read that? Years ago, it would have saved me the, the, the misery in my life. And brothers and sisters, that's what the prophets of the Bible and people like this are for, to help us in the journey. You know, I tell you what, if it hadn't have been for the writings of Ellen White, I wouldn't be standing in front of you today because I read years ago where she said about exercise is important, so I started to run. <laughs> and I'm glad I ran. <laughs> Kept me out of the box. <laughs> Other things, not only health, our marriage. My wife and I read books on how to bring up kids because she talks about how your family, talks about a range of things, how to be a, a preacher and an evangelist. She has many things, and I'm so glad. Now, when I do my studies each day, I spend three times more time in the Bible than I do, but I always read, try to read something of her every day because God gave her to be a blessing. But I always read far more than the Bible because that's the book, isn't it? But I'm going to read stuff that's going to help me. And the same can be with you and I. Well, let's pray together, shall we? Loving Father in heaven, thank you so much for the prophets, above all the Bible prophets. We pray that you will bless us, Lord. May we not despise prophesying. That would be foolish. That would be disobedient. But may we test them. May we check it. We don't want to swallow something that's wrong. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Countdown Back to the Future, made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church.
Faith by the John Marshall family. Coming up next, the Forbes family will sing God Leads Us Along. In shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the Oh 
enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com How do you know when you are called to do something or go somewhere? How do you decide if something is the right thing to do? Do you always know in black and white which path to take or which way to go in life? Or is it sometimes less clear? Does God leave some of the decision making to us? Ellen White's call and subsequent trip to Australia illustrates in many ways the challenges that we face in seeking God's will as she faced these two. In 1891, the General Conference officers sent an urgent request to Ellen White to spend some time in the new field of Australia. They felt it would be a great blessing, and if she had light in this direction, she was invited to set sail that same autumn. She prayed for weeks for guidance and direction, but nothing was forthcoming. She was willing to go, even though it was a great sacrifice, as long as she knew that it was the will of God. But despite her prayers, she only heard silence. She said, I have not special light to leave America for this far off country. Nevertheless, if I knew it was the voice of God, I would go. She had no light either way. In the absence of any clear light either way, rather than delay, she decided to go. Some have viewed her call to Australia as the result of politically orchestrated circumstances, but Ellen White never got entangled in such debates. She later said to her son Edson that she came in submission to the office of the General Conference, which I have ever maintained to be authority. This decision would prove a huge blessing to the work here in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific, a blessing they are still reaping the rewards of today. Not every decision we make does God have to spell out clearly, and action is better than delay. Ellen White moved forward, and during her time here in Australia, they would establish a sanitarium and later a hospital, a publishing house, a health food company, a college, all of which would grow rapidly over time. When Ellen White arrived in Australia, she was soon sick with rheumatic fever for about eight months. She was in pain and was in bed for a long time. 
Despite her pain, she would continue to write in bed, but it got worse and worse, and it got to a point where they had to move her every two hours so as to lessen the pain. Eventually, she asked to be anointed, and afterwards she said that she was relieved but not restored, but content to wait for the Lord to work on her behalf. During this time, while lying on her back in bed, she spent a lot of time in prayer and later on said that she wouldn't exchange this experience for anything in the world. It was during this time that Jesus became a friend more dear than before. And one of the results of this experience was the writing of the book, The Desire of Ages, later on during her time here. Sometimes God was very explicit with how he led Ellen White, and at other times he was less direct. Sometimes he was quiet and she would have to figure it out. If this was how God led a prophet, then we cannot expect him to be more prescriptive in our lives today. Not every decision we make does he spell out exactly for us. And oftentimes he expects us to use our minds to reason as we come to a decision. God leads us in many ways, primarily through his word, through the wise counsel of friends and through providential circumstances. Knowing God's will is a constant struggle and challenge that we face at the many stages in life that we go through. I pray that as you seek God's will in your life, in the decisions that you have to make, whether to go into ministry or not, what occupation to have, where to live, whom to marry, that as you seek his will, you may move forward decisively. To view more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story is entitled, Not a True Prophet. Prophesying Against His Will. The story is based on the books of Numbers, chapters 22 and 31, Deuteronomy chapter 23, Micah 6, 2 Peter 2 and Revelation 2. My name is Shazu, a prince of Moab. I lived in the time when a people known as the children of Israel had come into the region of our country where our nation had settled hundreds of years before. It was a frightening time for us this Israel had many amazing experiences on their way from Egypt, where they had been kept as slaves for over 200 years. Worse for us was the fact that they had inflicted a devastating defeat on the powerful Amorites, 
a nation whose territory was near ours. Our king, Balak, decided that something drastic had to be done to try to ensure that our army was not wiped out by the advancing Israel hordes. He had heard of a prophet of sorts who lived at Pithor, close to the great river Euphrates, but quite some distance from us. A deputation was sent to entice this man, Balaam, to use his powers to place a curse on Israel. King Balak thought this would stop Israel in their tracks and ensure our safety from this vast multitude. So we set off on our way to Pithor, taking with us many gifts that we were sure Balaam could not refuse. Then he would do what we had wanted him to do, curse Israel. About two weeks later, we arrived at Balaam's home. We told him why we were there. We could see that he desired the gifts we had brought him. Then after we had rested for the night, the first thing we said in the morning surprised us. No, shocked us. Seemingly ignoring our costly gifts, he told us to go back to our king as, and I will quote his words, the Lord has not given me permission to go with you. King Balak's response was to send even higher-ranked princes with other officials to try to entice Balaam to do what he wanted him to do, promising him great honours and riches. To our surprise, Balaam decided to go with us. He told us he would speak only what God allowed him to say. We suspected that Balaam's God would not be happy that Balaam really wanted to go with us. We could see that he wanted our costly gifts, but still realised he could not curse Israel if God did not permit him to. On the way to our country, an inexplicable thing happened. Balaam's donkey, quite out of character, suddenly turned off the road and headed into a nearby field. This made Balaam very cross, so he struck the donkey several times, directing it back onto the road. Then an even more amazing thing happened. It appeared that the donkey saw a vision of an angel ahead, causing it to suddenly lean against a wall where he, the road became a narrow pathway and crushing Balaam's foot. This made Balaam extremely angry, so he beat the poor donkey very severely. Very soon, the donkey must have seen the angel again, for she fell down to the ground dislodging her cantankerous master from his seat, resulting in another beating of this poor animal. Then something happened that had never happened before, as far as I am aware. The donkey spoke to Balaam in human language, protesting that he had beaten her three times. Balaam replied, seemingly ignoring the amazing fact that his donkey had actually spoken to him, saying that he had beaten her because she had made a fool of him and caused him great embarrassment. The donkey responded by saying that she had always obeyed her master and carried him wherever he wanted to go and had never done anything like this before. To that, Balaam had to agree. It was then that Balaam saw the angel of the Lord who reprimanded him severely for the way he had treated his innocent animal. He added that if the donkey had not done what it had done, Balaam would already have been killed. 
This brought Balaam to his senses. So he acknowledged that he had sinned and asked permission to turn back to his home. The angel, however, had other plans for Balaam, so told him to go on his way with the entourage from Moab, but that Balaam would only be able to speak what the Lord told him to say. When the party finally arrived at Moab's chief city beside the Ammon River and appeared before Balak, the king told Balaam, in no uncertain terms, that he was unhappy that he had declined his offers of wealth the first time. Well, Balaam replied, I am here now, but don't forget that I cannot say anything I like. I can only say the words God puts into my mouth. Then commenced a series of attempts by King Balak to have Balaam to curse Israel. Several altars were built in different locations on the high country above where Israel was camped. Many animals were sacrificed, but this seemed to make no difference, for Balaam certainly did not curse Israel. He said things like, How can I curse the people God has not cursed? And, I want to die as a righteous man would die. At another altar he said, God has told me to bless, and who am I to countermand what God says? Even more frightening for us was his statement, The great God is with Israel, and shouts of praise are heard in his honour. At still another altar, Balaam's God put these words into his mouth, How lovely are the dwellings of all Israel, and the one who blesses you is blessed, but the one who curses you will be cursed. Between the sacrifices and the blessing on Israel, our king Balak was consumed with anger. He had wanted curses rained down on Israel, certainly not blessings. But Balaam wasn't finished. Yet another blessing was pronounced on Israel, even more wonderful and mysterious than before that we did not understand. He seemed to be looking far into the future when he said, I see him, but not just yet. I behold him, but still far away. A star shall arise out of Jacob, and a king shall come out of Israel. I cannot recall much else of what he said, but those last words are still ringing in my ears, long after these strange events even after Balaam himself was killed in a battle when Israel had overcome the Midianites. I have often pondered on why Balaam was not able to curse Israel as we had enticed him to do. And how wonderful is Israel's God, who had done and is still doing more amazing things for them in the victories they have gained right throughout the land of Canaan. I cannot dismiss the thought that their God must have some grand purpose for his people, not just in the immediate future, but also in the time far distant, when a star shall arise out of Jacob and a king shall come out of Israel. I, Shazu, shall think deeply on these things. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02 4973 3456 
or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Koval Smith. This story is entitled, A Bicycle Blessing. Psalm 32 verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Every day, I drive out on a small dirt road about four kilometres long to the main highway from where we stay. And almost every day, I meet a young boy about 12 or 13 on the road, herding his goats across to another field. One day I stopped and asked him his name. He barely spoke English, but I did find out that his dad had no work because his dad's bicycle had been stolen, so he couldn't get to his job because it was too far away. Last week, while in Johannesburg, all of a sudden, I thought of this little boy. I was thinking about him as I turned a corner and there, right in front of me, was a huge bicycle shop. I knew right then and there that I should stop and buy a bike. So I did. I went in and found an 18-speed bike. I thought it would be about 1,200 Rand. But it was only 500 Rand, which is about 85 US dollars. That is much cheaper than at home. I folded down the seats in the car and loaded it up. About two days after I got home, I saw the boy on the road again, stopped and took out the bike. He could not believe his eyes. They just about popped out of his head. When I told him that I had bought a bike for him, he excitedly responded, My father will be so happy. I took a picture and went on my way. Then about three days later, early in the morning, the boy and his father showed up at our place because they wanted to say thank you. It turned out that the boy had lost his father and mother and the man he was calling his dad was actually his cousin. This older cousin was married and had just had a baby boy a week ago, but when his uncle died, he took the boy in to raise him the best he could. The man was so thankful for the bike he could hardly speak. He told me that the job his uncle had was far away, but it was his if he could get there, and the bike would help him do that. He said he had to wait another 30 days before he could start his job. Jackie packed up some new baby clothes and other things for him to take home to his wife for the new baby boy. I knew that they would be living on nothing for the next 30 days until he started work. So I was going to find him later in the week and give him a few dollars to help them get through until then. He said it had been three months since he had been able to go to work so they must be desperate by now, especially with a new baby. I know that when we are impressed to do something good for someone less fortunate than ourselves, we may not always know the details of their circumstances, but I am finding out 
that we need to listen to that still small voice, which is the Holy Spirit, in times like these. While I was driving back to the place where we stayed, the boy was standing on the side of the road waiting for me. He waved me down and said, My mother wants to thank you for the baby clothes. Can you please come? Okay, jump in and show me where your house is, I replied. As we were driving, the little boy kept saying, My mother is so happy. She sings and dances because she is so happy. We drove through a field and at the far side was a little hut about 12 by 16 feet. The father and mother, as he called them, came out with big smiles on their faces. I got out of the car and the wife grabbed my hand and began to cry, saying, Thank you and thank your wife so much for the clothes for the baby. I had nothing for him. She asked, Where is your wife? I want to thank her. I told her I would get Jackie and return the next day. Then I remembered that Jackie had found a few more things for the baby and they were in the back of the car. I went to get them out of the car and when I opened the bag to give her the clothes, there was one bag of dehydrated soup mix. I pulled it out and said, here, this is soup mix and explained how to prepare it and that it could make 300 cups of soup. It tastes very good over rice. Both parents started to weep. I didn't know why, until the little boy pulled on my sleeve and said, My mother is happy now. Today we have had no food all day. I didn't know what to say. I could hardly hold back the tears myself. I figure it is okay for a man to cry once in a while, especially because I knew that they could eat something that day and for the next couple of weeks. I excused myself before I completely lost it. While I was getting into the car, I put my hand in my pocket to get the keys, where I felt some cash I'd just gotten from the bank machine an hour before. I pulled it out of my pocket, called the father over and said, I know you have no work for at least another month, so please take this and take good care of your wife and children and treat them well. I think the most amazing part of this story is how this little boy, who had lost everything, both of his parents, not able to go to school anymore, only herding goats every day, and now living with his cousin, and yet his first thought was not for himself. It was for the man who took him in and gave him a home with obviously lots of love in it. We could all learn a lesson from this next time we are thinking about how bad we have it and that the world owes us something. I know it is things like this that help me focus on the real important issues in life. A reflection associated with this story comes from Christ's Object Lessons, page 67. If you have accepted Christ as your personal saviour, you are to forget yourself and try to help others. Talk of the love of Christ. Tell of his goodness. Do every duty that presents itself. Carry the burden of souls upon your heart and by every means in your power seek to save the lost. 
as you receive the Spirit of Christ, the spirit of unselfish love and labor for others, you will grow and bring forth fruit. The graces of the Spirit will ripen in your character. Your faith will increase, your convictions deepen, your love be made perfect. More and more you will reflect the likeness of Christ in all that is pure, noble and lovely. A Bicycle Blessing was written by Ray and Jackie Brossuk of Partners for Others in British Columbia, Canada. You can visit partnersforothers.com for more information. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.